Hi, I'm Maya Trabulsi, news anchor for KPBS Evening Edition. Nonprofit public media is a crucial part of our community. And because public media is here for everyone, everyone can get involved. Share why you support KPBS on social media today during public media giving days. And thanks. The governor says results from new COVID testing will be faster. And ultimately to drive down the cost for everybody. This is exactly what the federal government should be doing. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The county approves its highest budget ever to shore up COVID expenses and economic loss. Most of that money is going to help with the services, uh, roughly $2.5 billion. And within that, you have hundreds of millions of dollars that are you know, going to address COVID relief. The QAnon conspiracy flirts with mainstream Republican politics. And it really isn't just the heat, it is the humidity. Why is this mugginess messing with San Diego's perfect weather? That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. In his update on the COVID pandemic in California, Governor Newsom today announced a new partnership to speed up COVID testing and test results while bringing down costs. The partnership is with the Perkin Elmer Company. Newsom says the state is preparing for more strain on the diagnostic system because of what he calls the upcoming twindemic of COVID and seasonal flu. But what is significant in this partnership is we are uh, demanding test results back within 24 hours, the latest 48 hours, and we have provisions in the contract to guarantee that turnaround time. You get in within 48 hours, certainly within 24 hours, uh, then we have the ability to make decisions in real time that will advance our efforts to reopen our schools for in-person education, reopen our businesses in a more effective and efficient manner. The governor also says he plans to release new guidelines Friday on reopening businesses in the state. As a result of the pandemic and its fallout on the local economy, the San Diego County Board of Supervisors Tuesday approved the county's largest budget ever. The more than $6.5 billion budget increases the county's health and human services resources, provides extra funds for rental assistance, and actually dips into the county's closely guarded reserve funds, a move that county officials say will have to be addressed before the next emergency. Joining me is San Diego Union Tribune reporter Charles Clark, who covers county government. And Charles, welcome to the program. 
Thank you for having me. Now, the County Board of Supervisors has been very reluctant to dip into reserves. It's a fact that they've been criticized for before. Was there much debate about using some of that money to aid the multiple crises the county is facing now? I mean, there was and there wasn't. It it was kind of varying degrees, right? I think there was a consensus um, among the board that they knew they had to tap into the reserves to a certain degree, and they've already been doing that, um, you know, as we've been dealing with the pandemic for several months here. Now, where they got into it a bit more here was with some of the fine line items and amendments that some of the newer supervisors in particular were proposing, Um, you know, certain things like translation services or, you know, getting a new traffic light and things like that. There was more debate about using reserves to address those things um, than, say, you know, providing rental housing assistance, which actually was surprisingly uh, the consensus among the board. I mean, I, I would point out just going back that as much flack as the board has gotten over the years for the reserves, and rightfully so in many cases, I think Diane Jacob and Greg Cox, both earlier this year, you know, and in the early days of the pandemic, they made it very clear that, look, this is what you kept reserves for, and this is the exact same exact thing they need to be used to aid with. And ultimately, the budget was approved unanimously by the County Board of Supervisors. So how big an increase is this budget over last year's? So it, it came out to, you know, roughly 4.8% increase, uh, which is pretty significant. It's also the largest budget that San Diego County has ever had, which, you know, I think is understandable in that obviously dealing with the pandemic. At the same time, there's certainly a bit of irony to it, right, that it's happening when revenues have, you know, taken a serious dip. But yeah, $6.55 billion is uh certainly a pretty good jump. I mean, that's more than $250 million over the current fiscal year. And where is most of that increase going? You know, most of that money is going to health and human services, uh, roughly $2.5 billion. Um, And within that, you have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that are, you know, going to address COVID relief. I mean, $100 million for the county's T3, you know, uh, test, trace and treat program, uh, you had, you know, I think 24 million additional dollars going to rental assistance, uh, as well as 15 million dollars for, you know, new tech to help with telehealth uh, and a few other things related to COVID. Speaking about rental assistance, is the county especially concerned about what some see as the coming eviction crisis? The sense that I kind of got, especially listening to board members, you know, yesterday evening. Uh, in particular, Greg Cox, I think, put it pretty well when he was introducing one of the amendments was that it, it seems like, you know, they recognize that for, you know, not the big landlords, but smaller landlords, it is tough, right, to not receive rent from people for several months now. Like even for them, even though I think we perceive them as a bit, you know, better off than their tenants, certainly, um, it can be a challenge. And he noted, you know, that's part of the reason they have a million dollars in there to try and aid with you know, tenant and landlord relations. Also, as far as the rental assistance, right, it's paid, it sounds like the process is that it's paid directly to the landlord, so there's no in-between. But it certainly seems like that's something they're going to be keeping an eye on. And, you know, I I do think that, you know, Helen Robbins-Meyer, our county chief administrative officer, um, I certainly got the sense that she was pretty mindful of it. I think that's part of the reason that you know, in introducing the the budget, she really emphasized to board members that they need to be mindful that 
there's going to be more crises here that they're going to have to deal with. And there's a lot of things that can put the, the county in an even more financially uh, perilous position. Right. Now, of course, you know, there have been calls to defund or de- divert some resources from police and sheriff's departments to be used instead for social services. Did that find any traction with San Diego Boards of Supervisors? To be frank, by my assessment, it, it, no. I, I think, you know, I think, you know, that was certainly what we heard a lot of people calling for. Um, and I do think you had certain board members who I remember I actually interviewed shortly after the killing of George Floyd. Who they spoke frankly about that. Um, they'd phrase it a different way, right, about increased investment in social services, but it seemed like the taking funds away from the sheriff's department in particular, which has a billion dollar budget, despite the fact that, you know, crime has been at historic lows for a, a pretty decent stretch here. Um, that didn't seem like something many of them were comfortable with. And I think, you know, with the current iteration of the board, at least, it would have been really hard to find, I think, you know, a majority to get behind that. Um, I do think, though, it'll be interesting to see, you know, next year as we get definitely two new members and potentially three new members, if that's something that's going to be revisited, uh, especially as we continue to see you know, increased, I think, anxiety across the country and in the county uh, regarding law enforcement's practices and accountability, right? Especially, uh, you know, I think we've all been watching what happened in Wisconsin. That was San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Charles Clark. What do Hillary Clinton, Tom Hanks, Barack Obama, Pope Francis, Oprah Winfrey, and the Dalai Lama have in common? Followers of a conspiracy theory called QAnon claim they belong to an underground satanic cult that sexually abuses children and practices cannibalism. QAnon isn't so anonymous now that President Trump has acknowledged them and at least one of their adherents is likely headed to Congress. And last night, a speaker was pulled from the GOP convention lineup at the last minute after tweeting anti-Semitic and QAnon conspiracy theories. Joining me to explain this phenomenon is Travis View, a San Diego-based researcher on conspiracy theories and co-host of the podcast QAnon Anonymous. Welcome to Midday Edition. Uh, Thanks so much for inviting me. So who is Q and what is QAnon, which we've seen touted on signs and shirts at many Trump rallies. It was associated with the infamous Pizzagate incident in 2017, right? Well, yeah, uh, Q is an anonymous entity that uh, first started posting on 4chan in October of 2017. And Q essentially claimed that they were some kind of government insider who was uh, releasing secret coded information about a uh, great global war that Trump was allegedly fighting against a satanic cabal of uh, pedophiles. A lot of QAnon followers believe that Q is a group of high-level military intelligence officials that are close to Trump. Of course, there's no real evidence that it's anything besides someone who is very, uh, very good at sort of manipulating people's hopes and desires. And how many people believe in QAnon? We really don't have a good solid poll about the size of the QAnon community. There was a recent analysis by The Guardian that showed that 3 million Facebook accounts followed various Facebook pages and groups, uh, but there's probably some overlap there. There was a recent analysis by uh, Mark Andre Argentino at Concordia University that showed the presence of QAnon in 71 countries. So I can't say for sure, but it is a global worldwide phenomenon and probably has somewhere in the you know, low millions of followers. 
And this group sounds crazy even in today's swamp of conspiracy theories, but Facebook, Twitter, major newspapers, and national leaders are sounding the alarm. And the FBI warns of the potential for violence. There's already been a few incidents, right? Yes. In fact, we've already had a QAnon follower who pleaded guilty to a terrorism charge. Uh, Matthew Wright, he held an armed standoff on the Hoover Dam Bridge, uh, demanding the release of an inspector general report that doesn't exist, but he thought existed because of QAnon. Uh, there's also you know, other instances. There was a case of Cynthia Absug. This is a Colorado woman who pleaded guilty for uh, plotting an armed raid with fellow QAnon followers. Uh, there's also a case about Ryan Jaselskis, who committed arson against the uh, pizzeria Comet Ping Pong for falsely believing that it was the center of a, a sex trafficking ring. So yeah, there is uh, many concerning incidents of uh, domestic extremism tied to QAnon. What's your sense of how people get attracted to this? Have a bunch of people in this country just submerged themselves in gross gullibility? Uh, I mean, that is basically it. There is a really a widespread sense of like institutional distrust. Um, they just simply reject anything that they consider to be what they consider to be the mainstream narrative, which more often than not is simply, uh, you know, well evidenced, uh, you know, facts about the world. And so they instead they instead of submerge themselves in this uh, alternate fantasy world that's a little bit more appealing to their personal perspective. And what are social media platforms doing to put a stop to the QAnon nonsense? Aren't they a little too late? They are really too late. I mean, um, some uh, social media platforms acted quickly. Reddit, for example, all the way back in September of 2018, they banned all QAnon-related subreddits because they realized it was a problem. Uh, other, The bigger uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, uh, they recently have taken action to uh, stop recommending uh, QAnon pages in algorithms and even ban some uh, QAnon-related uh, pages and groups. But by this point, the 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 QAnon network of followers has grown beyond in any individual uh, social network online. So I don't think this is going to do much to slow the popularity of the movement. Now, I referenced Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican candidate for Congress in Georgia, whom Trump has called a rising GOP star and a winner. If she wins in November, which is likely, what might her presence in Congress mean? I mean, we already have a, uh, a at least one Congress member who's sympathetic to QAnon. That's Paul Gosser, even though he hasn't specifically endorsed QAnon, he has sort of uh, retweeted QAnon followers. I mean, it would certainly signal that this kind of extremism is becoming uh, more acceptable. And I think the real danger there is that we start having more legislators who base their views not on a any sort of real concerns that the country is facing, but rather some sort of alternate fantasy world that uh, that they prefer. I think that that's certainly very dangerous. Because of Green's primary win, Trump was confronted about QAnon by a reporter the other day. What was the president's response? What President Trump said in response to a question about QAnon is that uh, he praised the QAnon community. He said that there are people who love the country. Um, when uh, when told about the broad outlines of the more deranged aspects of the QAnon theory, he didn't uh, denounce it or deny it. He said he simply said, "Is that a good thing or a bad thing?" Uh, he claimed he didn't know much about it, um, but. Um, this was very, very encouraging to the QAnon community. I mean, they they took this as a validation. They took this as encouragement, and um, so the, he he seems to be uh, be willing to signal to these people that he's willing to uh, not not denounce them in any way. But other Republican leaders have been pretty direct in their criticism of QAnon, right? 
That's true. There is a handful of uh, criticisms. So one of the more uh, forceful denouncements of QAnon came from Congressman Adam Kinsinger. So there are a handful of uh, you know congressional Republicans who have who have spoken out against QAnon. However, nobody in the White House, including you know uh, Press Secretary Kayleigh uh, McEnany or the uh, Chief of Staff. Um, have really claimed to have never spoken out against it in any way. Um, they, um, they instead tend to play dumb. There is a bit of a division between the White House Republicans and the, um, the House Representatives Republicans in terms of how they respond to QAnon. And that'll be interesting to see as we move in this uh, election year. Now, the party's worried enough about QAnon and, and a lot of these uh, controversial tweets. They yanked a speaker, Marianne Mendoza, a member of the Trump campaign advisory board from the convention lineup on Tuesday night. Now, does this QAnon thing go away if Trump is defeated in November? Uh, I sincerely doubt that QAnon will simply go away if Trump loses the coming election. I mean, QAnon followers, they are experts at rationalization and continuing to believe despite uh, whatever failed prediction Q makes. So if uh, Q does not win in the coming election, they'll simply find an excuse to keep believing. I've been speaking with Travis View, co-host of the San Diego-based QAnon Anonymous podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. The flu season typically begins in October, and health experts are worried how that will collide with the current coronavirus pandemic. KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento asks Kaiser Permanente's Dr. Will Sang how the annual flu shot may help. Dr. Sang, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. Flu season's coming up. We're in the middle of a pandemic. What is the first thing that the public needs to know? The public needs to know that the flu vaccine works. Uh, for the last uh, several years, CDC has looked into the study and proven without a shadow of a doubt that you can prevent hospitalizations up to 37%. And if you do get admitted, you reduce your chances of ending up in an intensive care unit by 82%. We do know that the efficacy of the flu vaccine changes year to year. I believe it's 40 to 60% efficacy based on year. That's, you know, not really a convincing argument for people. I mean, we, we hear those numbers thrown around, but the key thing is if you look at the studies, and CDC has done this every year now, to look at the efficacy. That's why I said that if you have been vaccinated, you can reduce your chances of getting in, to be ending up in a hospital. But more importantly, even if you do come in for a flu-like infection, if you've been vaccinated, it drops your chances of 
ending up in the intensive care unit or even dying from this disease by up to 82%. On top of that, you can also prevent yourself from spreading it to someone who's older or younger, who are more vulnerable, and that's really what we want. Protect yourself, but to protect your family as well. How are you actually going to spread that message that results in people actually coming in at a time when people are scared to come in? I guess the best example is this. You know, not only do we believe in this, we walk the walk and we, we talk the talk, but we walk the walk. So all our physicians, all our staff physicians, every year we have about high 90% um, vaccination rate among all our staff physicians, up to 99.3 in s several years because we believe in it. We're not just talking about it, we, we follow that advice. Um, you know, the only exceptions I'll tell you is people who take extended leaves or uh, if they have valid medical concerns uh, that's documented. That's your staff. What about rollout for the public? We've learned from this pandemic. Uh, we've learned that we can use technology wisely um, keep the same quality, keep the same service, and increase the safety. So last thing we want is to transmit it from person to person. So we've leveraged technology. We have walk-up, drive-up, we have uh, on-site, we have face-to-face. -face. Uh, we have all different means to get you to, to, to have the vaccine, receive the vaccine safely. So we've also uh, put a QR code. So instead of the traditional walk up to the clinic, grab a clipboard, Grab a pen, sign it, everything is digital. Even the education component's digital. So we can minimize that risk of transmission. It's all about prevention. It's all about making sure that you don't get sick and that we help you get what you need to keep you healthy, keep you and your family healthy. Why is it more important to get it during the COVID-19 pandemic? If you get flu and you get damage in the lungs for flu, you are more susceptible for other viruses, not just COVID alone, but all the other lung diseases. There are tens of thousands of people in San Diego County who have previously tested positive for COVID-19. Should they be getting the vaccine? Absolutely, they should be. Now there is an exception. When you have COVID, if you're active with COVID, that is an exception because we don't want you to get transmit the, the virus to other people as well. We wanna keep you safe. So after you're, you're um, recovered from COVID, yes, absolutely, you should be one getting the vaccine. It's very important because we know COVID has some lasting effects in the lungs. So you don't want to damage your lungs further. You want to make sure you prevent from getting infections. That was KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento speaking with Kaiser's Dr. Will Seng. The Black Lives Matter movement has generated debate and awareness regarding racial prejudice and calls for reform in communities across America. That includes the overwhelmingly white city of Coronado, where a petition to encourage schools there to imbue curricula with minority perspectives garnered 4,500 signatures. But that movement for change has sparked a backlash, a counterpetition. It labels Black Lives Matter a, quote, highly political Marxist organization with views that are rightfully alarming to anyone who believes in family, the Constitution, and civil society. Reporter Ashley McGlone of Voice of San Diego wrote about the controversy and joins me now. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Mark. Well, your story notes that the school population in Coronado is just 1.4% black. Explain what incidents, besides general protests over the killing by Minneapolis police of George Floyd, prompted the original petition calling for changes in what kids are taught in Coronado schools. 
Yeah, so a number of students of color, both past and present, had expressed a desire for more equitable punishment and discipline of students that, you know, launch racial slurs or taunts. They described some issues with, you know, experiencing and hearing the N-word and having students, you know, repeatedly call them that and then not get in trouble for it. So they really wanted to see that addressed more equitably. Um, They also, a number of students discussed uh, problems the annual Colonial Day, uh, which did not, in their view, you know, acknowledge the slave trade going on at the time and often, you know, even provoked some of their peers to make comments about slavery, uh, you know, sort of aimed at them. Um, Then there's also just, you know, even in the lower grades, you know, uh, racial aggressions that they experienced um, and they would like to see the school district more proactively teach um, as well, you know, uh, issues of race and read books from, uh, you know, authors that are African-American and read, you know, learn about history from that point of view and not just a white point of view. Now, what was the reaction to the change petition from Coronado Superintendent Carl Muller? So he was actually uh, very receptive. He he came out and said, you know, I'm impressed that our local community is having a voice and, and weighing in on this. And, you know, this is not a political issue. Racial justice is not a political issue. It's an American issue. This is a human rights issue. Um, and he, he did specifically say, you know, I believe strongly that the Black Lives Matter issue is one that our community has embraced. Um, He said that in a video statement and in a written statement, and then even just outright said, you know, yes, you know, Black Lives Matter. But those words uh, turned out to be very triggering for some members of the community who who then took great issue with any notion that there would be these sort of changes coming uh, with any kind of affiliation or alliance with the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. That's the backlash that you're writing about. And tell us about the counter petition that emerged in late July. Who's behind it? How many signed it? Uh, What are the arguments they're making? So at this point, it's got about 264 uh, signatures. Basically, they they caught wind of both the initial petition and, as well as the superintendent's support of making some kind of change. Although the district never put in, you know, firm plans to dramatically overhaul anything, but they you know were open to it and they were listening to the calls for change. And so they saw that definitely had a problem with it. Said, hey, wait, 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 you cannot come in here and make these radical changes to our curriculum with any affiliation with Black Lives matter. You know, we believe it's a Marxist organization. Uh, We have problems with their mission. You need to put a stop to any and all changes that want to be made this school year. We need to have a debate about this. We need to have a committee about this. You need to take community input. Um, Fine. If we need to make some changes that are race related, fine. But you know, you need to denounce Black Lives Matter and back away from this plan of action, basically, is what they've said. And so they, they did create this petition. A number of them do have connections to Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church. Um, the pastor, you know, signed on to this counter petition, a number of deacons and elders, the children's director, the bookkeeper, uh, the pastor, McElrath, told me, you know, it's not a, a church-led petition by any means, but certainly, you know, members of the community became aware and had concerns, and they all they all feel similarly, so they threw their support behind this counter-petition to try to get Coronado to stop making these sorts of changes that were being asked, um, you know, to, to stop making progress on making changes, especially for this coming school year, uh, so that's, that's sort of what we found with the counter-petition there. But no changes really specifically have been made regarding racism and tolerance and curricula so far, right? So the school board in their latest meeting, they did put some more specific language in their action guide, you know, outright barring, you know, sort of race related discriminatory language, as well as religious based and other um, 
and gender-based, you know, sort of discrimination. So they did take that step to, to a point. Um, they are working on a new equity policy, uh, the draft of which was by the California School Boards Association and, you know, was more aimed at like, um, you know, closing the achievement gap and the differences in education between different racial groups. That's not really at the heart of the movement, um, you know, that initially arose in the wake of the George Floyd um, killing. And so uh, we'll see what happens. They're going to have a committee convene uh, to both address that equity policy, maybe rewrite it a little bit before they adopt it. And then they're launching a longer term, you know, sort of two year committee process with various stakeholders who haven't been selected yet that will look at maybe making changes to, you know, district hiring practices, um, whether there does need to be new curriculum introduced across the board to address some of these issues and things of that nature. So as far as that long-term timeline, the counter petitioners are, are sort of getting what they wanted in that, you know, nothing immediate, more this, you know, a couple of years out, maybe we'll see some more come to Coronado. But in the short term, Coronado did make a couple of immediate changes, at least a couple that were asked for. Now, does this controversy figure to cause changes on the school board um, in terms of, of elections? So three, three people who ended up pulling papers to run for school board um, were also, uh, you know, had signed on to the counter petition against, you know, the racial justice um, movement that was happening. And so one of those individuals has since decided not to run. There's only two, two seats open. Um, and so he said, you know, I understand there's two others that basically share my point of view. I don't want to split the vote. I didn't really want to run anyway. But yes, you know, this was my motivation for running. We needed to stop this sort of political indoctrination of of our schools. Um, and so that, that was very much his motivation. And again, there are a couple others and they all do have ties to the Graham Memorial Presbyterian Church. Either, you know, they play in the band or they serve coffee or, um, you know, have been attendees for a while. Or, or I think in the one uh, individual's case, he was a deacon uh, who, who he's no longer running for school board, but very much believes that the other two will sort of hold that mantle and, and hold the line when it comes to Coronado wanting to make these changes um, and, and, and help them to not do so so quickly or with any affiliation with Black Lives Matter, which again is, is the heart of a lot of their issue. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Ashley McGlone. Thanks very much. Thank you. A stretch of high temperatures in the 80s and 90s in San Diego is not that unusual in August, but with humidities also near 80%, that is not typical San Diego weather. However, it might be something we're going to have to get used to. The heat and humidity we've been experiencing for the past two weeks can be traced back to changes in the Earth's climate, and those uncomfortable conditions could become more frequent in the coming years. Joining me is Alexander Gershinov. He is a climate scientist with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And Alexander, Sasha, welcome to the program. Thanks, Maureen. Nice to be back with you. Now, we've heard that this heat wave is being caused by a heat dome that's been covering a large section of the western states. But what is causing the humidity? The humidity in heat waves in California has been increasing over uh, decades, since the 80s pretty much, uh, in uh, these summertime heat waves because of the warming of the ocean. What part of the ocean in particular do we know? It's really the Pacific Ocean west of Baja California that's been warming more than uh, than most other parts of the global ocean. The global ocean has been warming as well, but there are these bullseyes of accelerated warming, uh, and that's one of them. And uh, when uh, 
that air is delivered to California, it's uh, it tends to be warmer, but but much more humid. The amount of humidity that the air can hold really depends um, exponentially on temperature. So if it's a little bit warmer and you've got saturated air sitting over the ocean, it's going to be a lot more humid. Now, the water temperature recorded at Scripps Pier last week was more than 77 degrees, and only a few weeks ago it was in the 50s. Is that evidence that of that warmer water being pulled in our direction? Well, I was talking specifically of the air that's been sitting over the warmer water being pulled in our direction. But certainly, you know, when our coastal waters, you know, just off the coast of uh, the California Bight is warmer, we feel the humidity very directly. We don't even need to have a heat wave for that. And, and certainly um, the water temperature uh, right here off our coast has been jumping around a lot uh, this, this summer so far, you know, in, uh, uh, in mid July over a period of one day, it went from, uh, red heat for that day, uh, to record cold, uh, for the next day. Wow. We've been hearing for years that climate change will have the effect of making California warmer, but also drier. So where does this excessive humidity fit into that picture? So basically the dry season uh, is getting longer uh, with climate change because the expanding subtropical belt ba- basically makes our uh, dry season longer and the wet season gets squeezed into the peak of uh, winter. Now, we all know that a wet heat is more uncomfortable than a dry heat, but why is it more uncomfortable? Well, when it gets really hot, then uh, uh, we start cooling off more efficiently by sweating. It, when the sweat evaporates from our skin, it cools the skin down. Actually, the same thing happens on the global level when, when water evaporates from the ocean or from, a, or from a humid surface. When there's more humidity in the air, that sweat just doesn't evaporate as efficiently. And we've all felt when it's humid, the, uh, the sweat runs off, it stays on our skin, and it just makes us wet, but not uh, cooler. Can this kind of heat cause people to get sick? Certainly, especially since we're not really acclimated to humid heat in this part of the world. And, and uh, you know, the other thing that, that humidity in the air does is it prevents temperature from cooling down at night. So the nights remain much hotter uh, than they would be during dry heat waves. And we don't get the respite from uh, the heat. People with pre-existing conditions, especially that make them more vulnerable, Uh, to heat, begin to get sick, and uh, some people die. Now, if we're going to be seeing more of these stretches of hot and humid weather in the summer, how do you think San Diego needs to prepare for them? I think that uh, during the time of COVID specifically, we can't really tell people to crowd into uh, cooling centers. So some adjustment needs to be made in that respect. Also, when... uh, nights are hot during these humid heat waves, cooling centers are closed, and there's got to be some other way that we uh, intervene uh, to reduce the uh, health impacts of this humid heat. I read that you were thinking that maybe we could adjust electricity rates for people who need to run their ACs a little bit longer. Of course, yeah, we're thinking about, um, you know, these crises, uh, uh, piling up on top of each other, you know, there's a 
health crisis uh, with COVID. There's an economic crisis uh, also related to uh, COVID lockdown. And, uh, uh, you know, people, even if they have air conditioning, they may be less likely to uh, turn it on if they're unemployed and can't afford it. Uh, health extreme weather events have to be considered in the context of everything else that's going on. I've been speaking with Alexander Gushinov. He is a climate scientist with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Maureen. Hi, I'm Maya Trabulsi, news anchor for KPBS Evening Edition. At KPBS, we're storytellers, providing trusted, accurate news and information to our community. But not everyone realizes how important that is. And that's why we're asking you to tell that story during public media giving days. Share what inspires you on KPBS. Text, call, or post with hashtag publicmediagives. And thanks. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh, and you're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. So much of the activism we're seeing right now around racial justice has roots in radical movements that erupted in California. The United Farm Workers, the Black Panther Party, the Asian American Political Alliance, the Native American Occupation of Alcatraz. In August 1972, another occupation kind of flew under the radar here in California. A Chicano activist group called the Brown Berets camped out on Catalina Island for three weeks, demanding that undeveloped land be turned into housing. The California Report magazine's intern, Ariella Markowitz, grew up on Catalina, but she only recently learned about this slice of the island's history. And she says it feels more relevant now than ever. On Catalina, there's this cliff overlooking the ocean, enough space to pitch a few tents. It's beautiful in a down-to-earth way with all this sparkly broken glass and carved initials in the breezy eucalyptus trees. Danger, no trespassing, falling rocks. Locals call the spot Burrito Point, and I heard stories as a kid that there was an Occupy movement that happened here in the 1970s. Now I'm back on the island, and I wanted to dig up some stories from home. I googled it and stumbled upon this radical history that I never learned about in school. Growing up, my town was conservative, defined by tourism, and it still is. It's encouraging visitors during a pandemic. Most residents are Latino, but white people are primarily running the local government, businesses, and are the landowners. The Mexican-American, those are the people that were shortchanged more than anybody, and we continue to get shortchanged. That's Dr. David Sanchez, the man behind the occupation for Chicano rights. Growing up in South Central L.A., he says he confronted gang violence, police brutality, racism, and discrimination. I don't know how I survived it, but I did survive. And uh, it just made me aware that, you know, America was not Disneyland that I thought it was supposed to be. He wanted to create an alternative to joining a gang, an organization that champions cultural pride, unity, education, and advocacy. The Brown Berets. The group was born in 1967 in an East L.A. coffeehouse called La Piranha. 
they started using it as a headquarters. Well, the coffee wasn't very good sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it was a little two days old sometimes, but nonetheless, our main point was to, to organize the community. You know, that was our, our hidden agenda. And a lot of people joined the movement. The Brown Berets evolved out of the movement in the Chicano community for social justice. This audio is from a student film called Chicano Moratorium that chronicled the movement in L.A. The Brown Berets are a community organization that give new pride to Chicano youth and that educate all the people in the barrio on their social and political rights. The Brown Berets helped organize mass protests against the disproportionate number of Chicanos dying in the Vietnam War. They were known for taking direct action against police violence, showing up outside the police department whenever a cop killed or brutalized someone. One weekend, Sanchez decided to hop on the SS Catalina, strictly on vacation. We went to the island, and uh, it was just it was just a very beautiful, seemed to be a very beautiful place, a very beautiful spot on the map. Because you, know, you had the beaches, you had the ocean, you had the hills, you had the sky, you know, you had the flying fish, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was really, really, really nice place to go. Something about the island stuck with him. He rented an apartment. And on the weekends, I would go out there and uh, just really got to know the people and the people from Tremont. Tremont is Catalina's only public housing option. His new friends told him about how hard it was to afford housing on the island. The city council had just passed a measure that limited household sizes to five people. Alongside discrimination and high rents, working-class folks struggled to make it work. So he had an idea to occupy the island. He was inspired by the occupation of Alcatraz that happened just three years earlier and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. It ended the war with Mexico in 1848 and gave a huge chunk of land to the U.S., to Sanchez, the treaty is proof that indigenous and Mexican people were systematically disenfranchised and stripped of their land rights. To top it off, neither Catalina Island nor the Channel Islands were explicitly mentioned in the treaty. These islands do not belong to the United States. These islands are Mexican territories. So Sanchez said the idea was, this land should belong to the people, not the landowners. In this archival reenactment video on the Brown Berets YouTube channel, around 26 folks in military uniforms march off the boat dock, displaying huge Mexican flags, past tourists in straw hats, Hawaiian shirts, and bikinis. The Brown Berets camped out on this elevated point overlooking the ocean, which Sanchez planned out as a strategic location. They always say, take the high land, you know. You know, it fortifies you from people who want to to harm you. They put up the Mexican flag and called the spot Campo Tecolote. They didn't have the resources to stay long, but David figured he'd wing it. I, I went over there with $800. You know, that's, what, that's all I had was $800 for the whole operation, right? We bought food and, uh, you know, a lot of the Mexican-American girls uh, came to our camp. Uh, they would bring us enchiladas and beans. And burritos. That's how Burrito Point actually got its name. I 
I mentioned earlier that Catalina Island is a small conservative community. I posted about the occupation in a big Facebook community discussion forum, and a lot of people nostalgically remember bringing them food and hanging out at Burrito Point. But others plotted against the outsiders from East LA. This is what people wrote. We camped out up there with no toilets, water, etc., and soon developed strong body odor. It was awful standing anywhere near them in the grocery store line. A bunch of the men in town met up at the golf course with baseball bats, golf clubs, and such, and were all ready to go up and pound the idiots. It was a big deal in a tiny town. There was no violence. I never felt threatened. I was not at that meeting where local men plotted violence, but I have several friends that were. Now, that part was disturbing. I was bummed that some of our good citizens were armed with handguns, intent on raiding a camp of unwitting young people. That angry white mob never ended up storming the hill. One source told me that the local sheriff made them back off before anything happened. But David Sanchez says someone tried to come and take down their Mexican flag. You got stuck in the cactus bush. You know, so it just, you know, we were, we were you know, defended by nature, you know. After three weeks, L.A. County policemen arrived to enforce an illegal zoning ordinance. The Brown Berets were rooted in principles of nonviolence. They didn't resist. They were escorted off the island. The occupation didn't end with more housing on Catalina, so I asked David Sanchez, do you see it as a success? I think it, it was a success. Uh, it was a success because it marked history. The problem was that the police, began to attack the organization on the mainland. Sanchez says the FBI's counterintelligence program targeted the group, attacked their supply lines, and caused chaos within the organization. Sanchez disbanded the Brown Berets in 1973 for the members' own protection. Occupying Catalina was their last act for a really long time. So Sanchez switched gears. He got his PhD, became a teacher, and a drug and alcohol counselor. I think I've done what I had to do, and I continue to to stand for the rights of the people. Okay, here we are. Sanchez actually started the Brown Berets back up again in the mid-1990s. These days, they organize vigils and demand justice for victims of police violence in L.A. In fact, every Wednesday, they protest outside the L.A. District Attorney's office. And they're going to be gathering for the 50th anniversary of the Chicano moratorium protests, the huge march against the Vietnam War in East L.A. later this August. What Sanchez and the Brown Berets did 50 years ago on Catalina Island lives on in the impact it made on people's lives. The story that stuck with me the most was from Ana Araiza. It's an island. It doesn't belong to anybody. You live here. It doesn't belong to you. We talked on the phone, and it's a little scratchy. Ana lives in Mendocino County now, but she immigrated to Catalina with her family from Juarez when she was four. She was a teenager when the Brown Berets came to the island, and she remembers her white classmates talking about wanting to, quote, kick the Brown Berets off the hill. Even though Ana called the island home, she says she felt invisible. It wasn't okay to be Mexican. You know, Mexican was like a dirty word. She recalls meeting one of the members of the Brown Berets and spending the afternoon with her. And that moment stuck with Anna. Years later, she left the island and had a long career in organizing farm workers and helping domestic violence survivors. 
She credits her life trajectory to those seeds that were planted by the Brown Berets. For The California Report, I'm Ariella Markowitz on Catalina Island. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.